five closest friends are often going to be an indicator of how successful you're going to be. This is episode number 38, Seeing is Believing, with Nathaniel J. Williams. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to make a brief announcement and invite all of our listeners to our upcoming conference on October 20th in Philadelphia a conference where you'll have a chance to connect with hundreds of other people who are going through a similar journey that you are, a conference where you will get a chance to hear from speakers from all over the country, including Adele Harris, Tiffany Jacobs, April Dinwiddie, Stacey Johnson, Nathaniel Williams, and myself included. For more information, please go to overcomingodds.today forward slash path to resilience. Now, let's get back to our guest. Anything is possible if you believe in yourself. He said, I didn't want to be a Catholic nun, but I wanted to be the executive director. I wanted to be the person who was able to make things happen for children. So, at the age of 12, I started signing my name, Nathaniel J. Williams, executive director. Tune in to today's episode as we talk about the importance of visualization, the importance of having the right environment and cultivating the type of behaviors that you ultimately want to have within your life, and tips and tricks for dealing with some of your traumatic experiences. Without further ado, please welcome Nathaniel J. Williams. Thank you so much. My pleasure. For being on the show. And what I wanted to do is, um, first I wanted to introduce you why I decided to have you on this particular podcast. And the biggest reason for that is you are someone who's been there and done that when it comes to um, living in foster care. And then now you're doing the work that you do to help benefit a lot of the people that you might have seen as being yourself and some of the other siblings that went through a lot of the struggles and pain points. Um, so with that said, I wanted to give you a brief time to introduce yourself and the work that you're doing and how that's impacting some of the local community here in Philadelphia. Sure. Uh, as you said, um, uh, I was in foster care and uh, went into foster care at the age of five. My mother passed away from a cranial aneurysm and uh, she had 12 kids. Mm -hmm. um, 10 of them were still living with her. Uh, two were old enough to be on their own. Um, so those 10 that were living with her had to go into foster care. Uh, because there was no one that was able to uh, take care of them. And, and you just have to imagine a phone call being made that your sister passed away yeah. and her 10 kids, and will you, are you willing to take 10 kids? And I'm sure no one was uh, that crazy. Um, so we were divided, uh, basically, uh, two each, to uh, foster homes and group homes. Um, and uh, I spent the next 13 years in, in foster homes and in group homes uh, before aging out of the system at 18. 
um, and always wanted to have an impact. And you know, being in Carol, we say, you know, if I could run the show, things uh, would be better, be a lot better. Um, and um, so worked to do that, and um, eventually opened up Child First Services, um, uh, and have been doing this job for the last uh, 25 years as the uh, CEO and president. And we primarily um, run group homes uh, for uh, uh, youngsters. Um, generally, there are six kids in each group home, and the um, mm-hmm. <laughs> majority of them are, are, are teenagers. Um, we do have kids as uh, young, in our mother baby program, as young as two months old. Mm-hmm. And uh, in our other programs, where kids are young adults, are 21. Um, so we have uh, 21 group homes that span 175 miles wow. on the eastern side of the, uh, the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, and again, uh, you know, trying to provide uh, individualized support in those small group homes to help kids get over the challenges of being in foster care. It's very interesting that you say that. I mean, it's obviously quite the operation that you've grown over the years, and I'm sure it did take years, mm-hmm. and the struggles and all the things that you had to get um, to have that many group homes to begin with. I want to jump back and actually explore a little bit. When did you first have this idea that, okay, this is what needs to be built? And then the second part is, how did you develop that confidence within yourself saying, no matter what other opinion I receive along the way, I'm still going to continue on with this goal of building this facility? It was really uh, the work of a Catholic nun uh, who was the executive director of the agency that I was in. It's an agency in Rockland County outside of New York called St. Dominic's Home. And um, I was sitting on the steps of her office and she comes walking out and says, Nat, you know, what are you doing here? You know, you're supposed to be on the playground. And I said, well, my brothers and sisters were supposed to come visit uh, today, but their, their vehicle broke down and they're not coming. So I think she could see that I was a little bit sad. Mm-hmm. She said, you know, sit there for a minute. Uh, I'm going to go and I'm going to come back. And um, because it was a large campus with several hundred kids, we had a storeroom. And so she went downstairs to the storeroom and she had to be in her early 60s. And she carried up this bicycle, probably 25, 30 steps. Uh, to give it to me. So I thanked her very much and then took my bu- the bicycle went back to the cottage and said, everybody, I got a new bicycle. <laughs> and then they started asking me to ride it. And one of my housemates was riding the bicycle down the driveway. And that's when it dawned on me. Um, if I wasn't careful, that was going to be the story of the rest of my life, telling a sad story and waiting for a handout. Mm-hmm. But I really liked what Sister Mary Patrick did. She saw a problem and she solved it. And that's that was the day in which I recognized that um, that's what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a Catholic nun, yeah. um, but I wanted to be the executive director. I wanted to be the person who uh, was able to make things happen for children. Mm-hmm. And so I started at 12 years old, signing my name, Nathaniel J. Williams, executive director. It took, <laughs> me, it took me another 12 years for that to be my title, um, but it's been my title ever since. So uh, that was the day I realized uh, by, that, by that gift, it was a gift of a bicycle, but, but so much more than that, uh, that gave me some clarity um, that that's what I wanted to do. So I think for, as going back to your second question is, that was where the confidence came from. This, this Sister Mary Patrick was probably the kindest person. And now that I know what I know, probably the least likely person to be the executive director. She just had no you know, mean bone in her body and um, I think was trying to uh, make everybody happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, but that quality was what you know uh, made a difference to me that she cared when she didn't really have to, and she wanted to impact and wanted to use the resources of the agency to make things better. 
uh, and I was in this agency was built on orphans, and I was probably there was probably two hundred kids there, and me and another kid were probably the only orphans. And this is in the the uh, the early to the late seventies, early eighties, mm-hmm. um, that even orphanages at that point were not for orphans; they they were for kids that uh, had uh, families who were not able to care for them. Temporary so, housing, right? And so one of the things that you know people always say to me is that, oh, Matt, you understand these kids and what they're going through. They're going through something a little different in, than what I did. My mom was was dead, and there's nothing I can do. My father was unknown, and is not even listed on my birth certificate. These children that we find are being supported by agencies today have living, breathing mothers and fathers who have often chosen, or been led down a path that has pulled them away from their child, and that's a different kind of pain than when you have someone that can never come back. Um, so, uh, again, I think that uh, my story is. Uh, part of what Bill has built the foster care system, but I think the story has changed um, in a sense that often there are resources that the children have that are just not available to them, and I think there's a different kind of frustration um, that children have because of wanting something that's so close but often so far. Mm-hmm. Back in the day when you were going through the foster care system with a lot of the siblings, based on what I've read, were you who paved the way within kind of your family of? those children as far as okay this is how long we may want to stay this is how to get out this is what to do when you get out would you say that you were one of the ones that took on that role or is there someone else that inspired you I have an older brother Michael um, and he you know was I think in his uh, uh, teens at the point my mom uh, passed away and his goal was always trying to pull the family uh, together Mm -hmm. um, and to keep that sense of connectedness um, and um, so I think in, in the family he represented that glue that was trying to keep it together. But one of the things that I also recognize in reflecting back on those years is that often we feel that we're forsaken as foster kids, but um, I've realized that sometimes we're just, we're stupid and not realizing that we're, the provision is always there. It's just we're looking for one person to do it, Yeah. and it's a multitude of people. Yeah. And then going back and thinking about my, um, uh, my behavior, it probably was too much for just one person to deal with. So oh, absolutely. People, people had to take shifts uh, being able to tolerate uh, Nat Williams. Um, so I think that that's part of it is that it's just the model that we have. We think we're supposed to have a traditional model, but I think life has told us over and over again, our model is totally different. Um, but we keep wanting to look at what other, what other people have and uh, recognize we don't have that. So I think that throughout my life, I could always find a different person where one person stopped, another person began. Um, but again, I was looking for one person to rise up to replace my mother, and that just was not going to be the mm-hmm. not going to be the case. It's interesting that you mentioned the fact that dealing with different behaviors and in, in circumstances like that. I remember when I first came to the states, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that I didn't really speak any English to begin with. The words I knew were "Hi, how are you?" "Yes" and "No," which is really not enough to take you anywhere <laughs> at the, at that time. So a lot of the behaviors I experienced were just emotions because of misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like I might have had an idea of what my parents were trying to say, but I couldn't respond to them fast enough. Mm-hmm. So you bring up a good point with having so many different people in your life play a role, which f- firmly made me believe that every single person has is of value and has a story that's unique mm-hmm. to this world. And so from that point on, it made me realize that it doesn't make sense to a put people on a pedestal mm-hmm. and look at them any differently, but rather look at them and say, 
okay, this person has become a celebrity because of hard work or because of connections or because of other factors. You know, this person is striving towards this and these are the things that make up their work ethic and their mindset and all those things. So it's, it's, it's good that you bring that up because I think it, it does make you well-rounded and more down to earth mm -hmm. when it comes to human relationships. No question, no question about it. I wanna jump into today's um, topic and that is dealing with traumatic experiences. And the question I have for you is, when did you first recognize the type of impact that trauma has had on your life? Sure. Um, it was pretty er real early on and just when you listen to other people's stories and you try to reconcile them to your story, you realize that you know my story sometimes uh, was more um, uh, traumatic and, and more uh, challenging than others. So that was the beginning of just often trying to find someone else who had a similar experience and mine was somewhat of a challenge. Um, but one of the things that we've learned uh, later in life is that there are probably about, uh, we have a list of 74 different traumatic experiences that people can have. And that uh, what we find in working with foster kids is that most of their experiences happen earlier on in life, where mm. they, for other people it happens later. Mm -hmm. So they experience death and drug addiction and uh, uh, name calling and bullying and some of the other things um, that some people experience later Oh, it, it's front-loaded for foster kids mm -hmm. and so what we now understand is that um, most people are going to go through these it's just when and I think we have to do a better job as a society letting people know here's the list of bad things that can happen mm -hmm. so be on notice and be thankful when um, they happen uh, uh, later when you're most likely able to developmentally to deal with them um, but be on notice, they're, they're, they're coming. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, you, you may have, you see that on the list, that, you know, a fire. Well, you may have not experienced that when you're young, but you go camping and you, you, you do something wrong and bingo, you have a fire bigger than life. So you, you had it later. Some in individuals, you know, experienced that earlier on. And that's the reason why they're in foster care is their house burned down. Yeah. And there is no other. So just, I think part of it is the awareness uh, of that life is full of a lot of traumatic events and that if you're someone that is blessed um, with not having so many of them um, uh, be thankful um, but just be aware that they, they may happen just a little bit later in a different time frame um, so I think that that's part of it is that I think we try to live a life where we don't expect it um, and again we try, we try to share that list of challenging life events with people just to say be unnoticed um, these are the kind of things that can happen and more importantly these are the kind of things that you can do uh, to help uh, yourself uh, deal with them a little, a little differently. So just one example is that we've looked at friends and there was some research I read years ago that talked about your five closest friends are often going to be an indicator of how successful you're going to be. And for many years I would sure. share that uh, information. And then it dawned on me maybe about two months ago that my five closest friends are not people, they're behaviors. And their, their behaviors of uh, what we call is um, uh, water me, which is H2O-M-E, which is humor, humility, optimism, mindfulness, and empowerment. And that if I walk with those five friends, mm -hmm. um, that's going to make a world of difference. And also from a, a spiritual standpoint, people often ask is, how is your higher power with you? Well, that's how he's with me, with humor, humility, optimism, mindfulness, and empowerment. 
And if I walk through those events, those traumatic events that have happened, with that as my five closest friends and stop looking for physical people, but even if I look for physical people, I'm looking for those five qualities in mm. those physical people, it begins to change the, 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 the game. And on the other side of that, we, we have a, an acronym called GRABS that often we find ourselves with our five closest friends who are grandiose, raging, arrogant, blind, and selfish. So as opposed to the five qualities that um, we're supposed to be looking for, our five closest friends, we often get those people and places and things that want to grab from us. And as we deal with trauma and trying to deal with trauma with you know grandiosity, raging, arrogance, blindness, um, and selfishness, it makes it even worse. So uh, I think for us, it's, it's often, we're, we're just one understanding away from success. And that's why fellowship and the sense of community is so important. And one of the, ch the challenges of growing up in the foster care system is that you're so used to very transient relationships. Yeah. Um, and you need a steady as you go kind of um, uh, support. And I think our, our often foster children and their trauma is, is more exaggerated. Um, is because uh, they're stopping and going and picking up so many transitions so that there isn't that continuity that. but again uh, I think that you know keeping those five closest friends with you that allows you to go through those circumstances no matter who you run into um, and to be able to determine whether this is a good person place or thing for me based on whether or not those things are a few things that are present in, in the environment um, so trauma is going to happen. It's just that we can do a better job of letting people know and being aware that this is what they look like, and then more importantly, how do you deal with them um, and ways in which to cope with the circumstance. Mm. Are there traumatic experiences that you still deal with? And sure. if, if so, how do you how do you deal with a lot of them, and what steps may may you have for some other people? So, in, in, if those uh, traumatic events are given to your life. They're never leaving you. It will always be a residue. But that's what you want it to be. You want it to be a, a residue as opposed to something that consumes you. So I will always be a, a, an orphan. I will always be a person who lost his mom at age five. I will always be, um, you know, someone who has uh, had challenges with selfish. That that will always be who I am. Mm -hmm. And I think often we try to erase it, but. It was given to us, I believe, as, a, as an assignment to show people that it can be overcome. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's the piece that where I think people make a big mistake is they just want to, like it goes away. That's what makes you, you know, who Human. you are and yeah. that's what makes you who I am. It's that, that, that unique experience um, is um, part of what is, makes you special. So I encourage people to figure out a way to make it work for you. Um, and to figure out a way that you can help it work for other people. Um, so one of the things that I see uh, with, with foster kids is on a given day, there's four to 500,000 children in, in foster care, which if you look at it numbers-wise, and, and who comes in and leaves in a year's time is about 800,000. That would make them the 13th largest city in the United States. But when I go out and I try to find people to work with the children, they're not foster kids. So I think when I looked at a study recently, there were like there are 13 million out of 350 million people who have had experience in the foster care system. When I go out and I look for people to, to come in and, and do this work, I don't know where the 13 million are. 
And I think part of the tra trauma is you want to run away from it. Uh -huh. But who better to begin to understand? So when you look at foster parents and adoptive parents, often they're not people, that, they're not of the 13 million. Mm -hmm. and, and part of our challenge is to let people know this experience you had is it's not something you should run away from. It should, you should run to it. You've been given an awareness and a knowledge uh, about circumstances um, that others don't have and really try to find a way to make it work for you. So I think part of the, the understanding of trauma, it happens to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, we all have different ways in which we respond to it, but it's something you're not going to go through life not having it. Yeah, absolutely. I like what you said about the fact that you know, it, it's just it's one of those things where it's part of life, mm -hmm. and I think ma somehow making it not necessarily even into your advantage, but more so recognizing that these are the things that happen to me. What do I do about them? One of the things that I've uh, learned actually the recent, as I was flying into Philadelphia, I was on a plane. Um, I was on a thirty-two dollar flight, come into Philadelphia, wow. and I was sitting next to a baby, <laughs> the only baby on the plane just um, FYI, and the whole two hour, out of the two hours, uh, I wanna say about an hour and 40 minutes, an hour and 30 minutes, the baby kept crying. And so for me, once I heard that, I, in my mind I was like, okay, this, it's gonna be this type of flight, but hey, what do I do with this? So I, s I just sat, sat back and relaxed and meditated, and one of the things I started doing was I started writing um, kind of my, my story in a way that I can tell other people and that is I've lived a life to my knowledge that has been um, authentic as far as you know I, I don't hide things I, I tell it as is um, because I think that's how you can allow other people to understand that your experiences matter and your experiences are unique and it's I think our job as people that once we get to that point to tell that story and then from there to encourage other people. And I know that within this field, especially uh, foster care and adoption, you know, you bring, you bring up a good point with having a, such a small percentage of the bigger pie being those that have been in the system. And you said, okay, it's not like I can go out in the street and say, who is the former foster youth that you know, we're looking for people to hire? You have to seek them out. And I think what ends up drawing and building a lot of this community is that story, is empowering people to tell their story. So with that, how did you start telling your story? It, it really was um, by um, invitation that someone said, hey, uh, you know, this is something that people need to, uh, to hear about. Um, and so um, one of the things that someone pointed out is that I've written about 11 or 12 books, but never uh, about my story, it really was about lessons learned on that journey mm -hmm. uh, that uh, people would call my story. Um, you, know, you know, hopefully one day I'll sit down and, 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 and actually write the story. Uh, <laughs> but I want to, you know, when you start getting older, you start realizing that, you know, you're not done yet. So if I hold <laughs> off writing the story, uh, I realize I have more time. Um, so it's just part of uh, self-soothing uh, behavior. But I, I think that when you start sharing the story and you realize, uh, whether verbally or in writing, um, that, you know, it, 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 it gives you perspective. And mm -hmm. Again, I thought I had it pretty bad until I hear some other people's stories and what that looked like. Um, so uh, I, I think that um, when people do invite you to share your story, whether it's just one-on-one -on -one or with a group, um, 
it's important that you seize that opportunity because again, it was that circumstance was given to you as a gift. Mm -hmm. People say to me, "You're telling me my your mother died." Yeah, it, yes, she died, and because she died, and I did something with it, we've impacted her. Right. Death has impacted thousands and thousands of other people that she will never meet. Mm -hmm. um, so this agency is is here because of her death, mm -hmm. and so we have to take those circumstances that could be perceived as trauma and figure out a way, how do I make this work for me, but also for other people, um, uh, and, and, and share that story. Because often in the sharing of the story, you're going to realize it's not as bad as you thought. Yeah. But if you stay inside your head and recycle that story, it's going to sound worse and worse oh, yeah. <laughs> as you recycle it more, more and more. So th that telling the story is, th is therapeutic in lots of different ways for you as well as for other people to, to help them with their perspective too. Mm -hmm. Final thought for today's episode, and that is uh, something that I've started doing. It's called a moment of gratitude. Who or what are you grateful for? Well, as I said earlier, you know, all the different people, you know, when I think about there's a gentleman, uh, James Elkins, when I was in a group home who um, cooked pancakes every, <laughs> every, uh, every Saturday, um, and they were the, the best pancakes, so I would do anything to go back <laughs> to, to have, but as you can see, I've had my share of pancakes to get started. Um, uh, and, uh, but I think, and, and if you ask my children, they would tell you, what can daddy cook? It's, it's pancakes because of what James Elkins did. And there were so many people, um, you know, like uh, Mr. Elkins, who just gave something, um, you know, uh, small and meaningful to him, but made was large and impactful to me. So it's all those um, uh, people that are working in the foster care system, trying to make a difference. Now, Mr. Elkins, you know, was a sanitation worker uh, during the weekend, worked in the group home on the weekend, so he never had a day off. Um, and he was a Caucasian man working with Hispanic and black. Uh, uh, in African American uh, children, um, and we all gave him a very hard time because he, he looked like a hippie. And if you just touched him on the side, he would fall to the floor. Very ticklish, um, but he was a good person. And, and so I, I think often we want to look at the stars or who's the executive director, who the director mm -hmm. is, but often it's just the staff there on a Saturday that's making a big difference. So it, it's Jim and all those other people um, that uh, you know came to work and, and did what they could do um, in, a, in a small way. Um, but also in a very, very large way. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes, featured stand-up and speak-up stories, and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll look forward to having you next week.